Okay, welcome everyone to um, the first meeting of the term. It's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Eileen John. Eileen's an Associate Professor at the University of Warwick, where she's also Director of the Centre um, for Research in Philosophy, Literature and the Arts. Eileen's research is in aesthetics and um, philosophy of literature, with particular interest in literature and knowledge, and broader interest in personal autonomy, moral psychology, and conditions for ethical life. Some of Eileen's most recently published work has been on second personal constraints on love, the nature of our concern for fictional characters, and expressive thought in poetry. And the title of Eileen's talk today is Disagreement in Literature. Well, literature and disagreement. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> well, thank you very much for having me, and um, thanks for coming today. Um, I'm going to kind of talk through the paper and use some slides. Um, and I'll just begin by saying this paper emerges from um, being provoked by some short stories. And I've been thinking about them for an embarrassingly long time and have still not quite settled on the right way to think about them. Um, but. I'll just say what initially got me off the ground with them, which is that they all portray good arguments, what I would consider good arguments, arguments that roughly I endorse, that don't work out very well in the story. Um, and I think it's of interest to philosophers why these good arguments don't work. Um, and one reason you could say is, well, they don't work rhetorically. You know, they don't convince the audience they're supposed to convince. And that's certainly true in these stories, but I, I don't think that's the deeper um, significance of the way these arguments work. Okay, so what I want to do today is try to connect what's going on in these stories to um, a debate in the philosophical literature about disagreement. Um, and so I'm going to spell out this, uh, a few features of this philosophical debate and try to show how the stories um, uh, engage with the issues there and I think bring to light some sort of different possibilities that aren't showing up very clearly in the, the philosophical debate. Okay, now I also have an image up here that I I'm, I'm, uh, apologize because it's so hard to discern what it is. Does anyone know what this is a picture of? I know it's too, I couldn't find a decent image. Um, okay, the, this is the um, philosopher's football match, okay? Okay, now maybe you can tell. Um, uh, there ought to be a better image of it on the web, but I couldn't find one. Um, why is this here? Well, it's partly because there's an issue in this um, philosophical discussion of disagreement that I think is quite interesting that I'm going to ignore, but it is how to handle philosophical disagreement. And I just wanted to flag that um, because I'm, one thing I'm not clear about is how what I'm talking about, which will be ethical disagreement, relates to this issue of how to handle philosophical disagreement. And I'm just saying that's a problem. Um, and the other reason for this is that at the very, very end, I'm just going to say like one sentence about um, non-rational response to disagreement. And you might take this as a kind of example of non-rational response to disagreement. So let's go. Okay, how should we respond to ethical disagreement? When is what I'll call a conciliatory response, rational, where you in some way retreat from where you thought you ought to be and move toward a, a disagreeing um, party. One proposal within the epistemological literature um, on disagreement is that conciliatory response is rational or even required when what are called epistemic peers disagree. Okay, and I'll come back to that. But my proposal following the lead of a few short stories is that a conciliatory response to ethical peers can be rational even when they are or are in part epistemic inferiors. 
Okay, so I'm kind of going to try to get there, but I'm going to wind around a while in getting to that point. Okay, so just an outline of what I'm going to do. I'll say just a very few things about ethical peers and disagreement to begin with, to kind of give you a sense of what's at stake or why I think the short stories are showing what they show or what, what ideas I'm finding there. Then I'm going to sketch really briefly a few strands of this epistemological debate about disagreement involving conciliatory and steadfast views. And what I'm trying to get at is how these views handle what they sometimes call messy disagreement or controversial disagreement, which I take ethical disagreement to be a nice paradigm of. And lastly, I'll say a few things about these stories, and I hope to make the, the point I'm after with their help. And the stories are by Herman Melville. I think the most famous one is by him, Bartleby the Scrivener. Um, the Flannery O'Connor story is called The Barber. Uh, the Grace Paley story is called The Loudest Voice. Okay. So just a little bit about ethical peerhood and why it might have some interesting effects within disagreement. Okay, I'm not really going to say much about what it is to be an ethical peer. I think it's very easy to be an ethical peer in a way. I think you're all, we're all ethical peers, as far as I can tell. But if you are an ethical peer, you have that status because you merit a certain kind of concern and respect. And it's not because you have the right ethical beliefs, for instance, or that, that you and I share enough ethical beliefs. That's not the peerhood I mean. That would be a form of epistemic peerhood, sort of roughly. I just mean we're eth ethical peers to the extent that we owe each other a certain kind of concern and respect. Okay. Now, I think what's going on in the stories is that you're getting a sense of how ethical peers help constitute each other's ethical context. And so when you're reasoning with an, with an ethical peer, your reasoning in some way needs to address the context that includes their reasoning. Okay, And so what the stories are showing, I think, is how th these peers' reasoning can undermine my ethical context um, they can reveal something about it or about my way of fitting into it, um, or they can change the context, not by undermining it, but by changing it in some way that will affect my reasoning. Um, and lastly, and this is a very vague claim that I think a response to ethical disagreement with ethical peers is part of the project of sharing an ethical world. And this, so that's part of why it's complex, or part of why it's not going to be enough to look to epistemology to figure out how to handle ethical disagreement. Um, what I don't mean by that is that, ah, we're trying to share an ethical world, so when we disagree, we ought to be conciliatory because that would be the nice way to be to each other. That's not what this last claim is saying. It's not the demand to be nice to each other, but it is the demand to try to share an ethical world, which roughly involves, you're trying to make sure that you have reasons that you can share with each other. That if you don't have that, or you don't have the prospect of that, or if you're not making progress in that direction, um, ethical reasoning is going to be very difficult. Okay, so just very, I know these are just two abstract claims, but I'm just gonna say them and hope they make more sense later. Okay, so now let's go into the epistemological debate about disagreement that turns on this notion of an epistemic peer. So roughly, to be an epistemic peer is to be someone who has equal familiarity with the relevant information and the arguments in play, um, and to be equally competent at reasoning about this domain, whatever it is. 
Okay. So then the question is posed of how such peers who are basically equal in terms of what they know and in how they deal with evidence, um, how should they react when they end up disagreeing with each other? So most dramatically, it has been argued that that fact of disagreement with epistemic, an epistemic peer can give the peers grounds for withholding belief, okay? Even though they take themselves to have arrived at whatever they believe um, rationally. Um, but when they find out that someone else who's been doing the comparable thing has gotten to a different point, a different belief, uh, the idea is, well, isn't that a circumstance in which you ought to withhold belief? Okay, that's the, the conciliatory response. So why take one's views to be adequately supported um, if an equally competent peer holds a competing view? Okay, now I just want to note some remarks that are made kind of a, a by the sort of by the way in this debate um, that have to do with when the peer relation fails, when you're reasoning in, you're disagreeing with somebody who's not uh, an epistemic peer. Um, so Christensen, David Christensen and Jennifer Lackey, for instance, say, well, in that case, it's just much less clear that interesting epistemological issues arise. Um, you know, if you have superior epistemic standing, it doesn't seem you would have reason to revise your belief in response to disagreement. Um, Hornbliss says, you know, my belief will not be threatened when you disagree with me if I know that your contrary opinion is unreasonable. Okay, so that seems pretty straightforward. You know, um, people are laughing. I didn't think this would be funny, but good. Okay. Um, so that's why in this context, I want to consider these stories that portray, I'm claiming, epistemic inferiors who put pressure somehow on the beliefs of epistemic superiors, okay? Okay, now, uh, to follow out this debate further, the, these two camps, the conciliatory and steadfast camps are distinguished uh, in this debate. And they wouldn't, People or theorists in these camps wouldn't necessarily give different verdicts about exactly how someone ought to respond in a given situation of disagreement. There are all sorts of complications about that might allow their you know, verdicts about particular cases to converge. But it's more this issue of the, the I don't know, the structure of uh, evidence. So what is the relation between your first order reasoning that got you to believe X and this fact that you've ended up disagreeing with an epistemic peer? What, how did those um, forms of evidence um, work together? And the conciliatory views, um, I'm putting this very crudely, but they're saying that the fact of peer disagreement ought to override first order reasoning on a proposition and should substantially diminish or in fact remove one's confidence in that proposition, okay? Um, the steadfast view will we'll say, yes, you can acknowledge the fact of peer disagreement. You know, it, it, it can affect your degree of confidence, um, but what you're going to do is just include it in your reasoning base. You know, you're going to feed it into all the things you've been doing and thinking about this issue, and maybe it will lower your confidence a little bit. But there's no, it's not going to, as it, is, as it were, you know, swoop in and say, oh, you'd better withhold belief here. You know, you, you have to work with the reasoning you started with and take this fact of disagreement as one, one piece of evidence that, um, you know, uh, should make you a little wary of what you've been doing or something to that effect. Okay, so it's this, this idea that on the conciliatory view, there is a kind of external perspective on your own reasoning that is provided by this fact of peer disagreement. And the conciliationist thinks, 
it's pretty powerful. <laughs> that perspective is and ought to be quite powerful. Okay, so just some examples. Elga is a, offers a conciliatory view that he calls the equal weight view. So here's how he talks about it. One should give the same weight to one's own assessments as one gives to the assessments of those whom one counts as one's epistemic peers. Kelly gives a steadfast view that he calls the total evidence view, where he says rational response depends on both the original first order evidence as well as on the higher order evidence of peer disagreement. But this rational response is not fixed independently of substantive normative facts about how well supported one's original view is. So you would never leave those normative facts behind. So what lies behind this conciliatory steadfast divide? Well, I, I mean, I don't have great insight into that, but I'm just going to tell you what people say lies behind it. Um, and it is commonly traced to different, differing views on what you take into account when you're identifying epistemic peers. So Christensen, who gives conciliationist arguments, articulates this principle of independence. So he says, in evaluating the epistemic credentials of another person's belief about P to determine how, if at all, to modify one's own belief about P, one should do so in a way that is independent of the reasoning behind one's own initial belief about P. So the thought is this question of who counts as an epistemic peer has to be sorted out without taking, um, taking for granted the sort of the purchase you have on the issue um, from your um, first order reasoning about it. Um, the intuitive plausibility of independence, I think, is, is articulated um, a bit by Souza, who he's not, he's actually arguing against conciliation, but he, he says, to demote your opponent based just on your disagreement is likened to declaring someone else's watch inaccurate because it disagrees with your own, without having some independent reason to um, prefer one watch over the other. Okay, so the idea is you want to figure out who's your peer, well, you better not just take it for granted that um, your reasoning on this issue helps show that you're superior to your um, disagreeing party. All right. Now, this is, <laughs> this is the point at which controversial disagreement or messy disagreement starts to be um, um, approached because people say, well, this this requirement that you get independent assessment of epistemic peerhood isn't going to work um, for controversial, messy disagreements such as on ethical issues. Okay, so why not? Um, so they say, well, yeah, if you have a simple factual matter, it may be possible to isolate the supporting reasoning that got the different parties to their competing beliefs so that you could then isolate that and look at um, other um, evidence to, to show whether they're epistemic peers or not. Um, and the example everyone refers to here is um, figuring out the, how to divide up the bill at a restaurant to people. Read, so this is, this is the issue that we should all be thinking about when you you say we each owe 20 pounds, and you say we each owe 23 pounds, and you're both really good at mental arithmetic. Well, what's the proper response to that situation? Um, and the thought is, everyone agrees, well, we probably can figure out that you're epistemic peers by saying, let's not worry about this particular calculation. That's look at your past history of mental arithmetic and we could be pretty confident that you're both really good at this and then it seems both of you ought to you have a nice independent sense of your peerhood in this 
regard. And so um, it does seem plausible that you ought to um, count each other as peers and withhold belief and both go back and calculate again or you know, do something different, get a calculator or something. Okay, so that seems like a nice example for the conciliationist and for this independence requirement. But Kelly, among others, says, you know, that controversial beliefs are often not easily understood as the output of some discrete process of reasoning. You know, so if you think of an ethical issue that you have a kind of perhaps controversial, or it's controversial socially, and you think of, well, why do you believe what you believe on this? You probably, it, the thought is, there's too long a path that leads to that belief, and it involves too much of what you think about your society um, and human nature and ethical principles. And it's like there's a lot that might be feeding into this um, process of reasoning. So if views on a controversial matter have a broad and deep enough basis, it may not be possible to assess whether someone is an epistemic peer while setting that basis aside. Okay, um, so the steadfast point here is that this independence requirement for figuring out who is a peer, an epistemic peer, would often require leaving out too much of what makes one a knowledgeable, competent reasoner on this issue in the first place. So let me just give one sample response or two, two responses to this problem from the conciliationist side. So Elga says, yes, in these messy cases, one's reasoning is tangled up with one's reasoning about many other matters, so one tends not to count one's dissenting associates, however smart and well-informed, as epistemic peers. And what he means by that is not that you, you end up thinking they're inferiors, um, non-peers, he just means you don't have a view on this. You withhold judgment about whether they're peers. There's just too much you don't know. It's too complex. You can't get an independent purchase on epistemic peerhood, so you just don't judge them to be peers or not. Okay. Um, so, on this argument, controversy and disagreement about controversial issues rarely warrants conciliation because you never are in this position of reckoning with disagreement with an epistemic peer because you just don't take them to be epistemic peers. You, you withhold judgment, I should say that. Now, why is he making this move? I mean, it's because he's trying to avoid what's sometimes called the charge of spinelessness um, for the conciliationist approach because it's a problem if um, um, in controversial matters um, you could assign epistemic peer status commonly, it seems you would commonly have to withhold belief or do something fairly radical in um, changing your confidence on um, controversial matters. Okay, so just, just one comeback to that. By a, a fellow conciliationist, Kornblith, he disagrees with Elga's argument and he says, no, in much ethical disagreement, the interlocutors are likely to regard each other as basically decent, caring, thoughtful individuals in respectful agreement about a very wide range of moral issues, and so that we can justifiably regard each other as moral epistemic peers. Um, so he thinks, no, a lot of the time you have a decently independent sense of people's competence as moral, um, morally knowledgeable and um, competent reasoners. Um, so you can assess people as peers in this domain 
and the grounds for withholding belief are restored. Okay, so, so he, he thinks Elga is sort of wriggling out of the spinelessness um, problem too easily. He, as I say, bites what I would call the conciliationist bullet. He thinks the conditions for peer disagreement uh, with respect to controversial issues are commonly met, or often enough met, and given that, it's likely that uh, we are required to withhold belief on controversial matters in a, you know, more radically than we actually do. Okay. All right. So I hope that's, I know that was just kind of a quick um, march through that, but um, uh, now I want to kind of switch gears and think, all right, how might attention to literary works, which thrive on the portrayal of disagreement, bear on this debate? Okay, um, I really can't, I, I, I can't happily generalize about literature, but I am going to say something general and speculative, um, which is, if, if I had to, if someone asked me, what are, what are literary works like? Are they, do they have anything, uh, at, any tendencies in, that are relevant here? I would say I'd have to take them to be broadly in sympathy with what, I'm, what Kelly calls a total evidence view. Because, you know, that this demand to acknowledge and integrate different kinds of evidence seems built into both the way fictional characters are often depicted as, you know, believing things as they do and the predicaments that gets them into and the reflective activity of reading where, you know, that's the challenge. Like, how do you let these different sorts of evidence feed in and interact and um, inform each other? Um, so the the dramatic potential of disagreement that, that literary works take advantage of lies at least in what Kelly calls the burdens of judgment, um, the need for an extremely substantive judgment about one's overall epistemic situation, as opposed to application of a general norm that, for instance, in this debate would dictate agnosticism. Um, so that's, this is just to say literary works is sort of a descriptive claim that there's a tendency within literary works, I would say, to take seriously the total evidence approach. Um, that is not to say that that has any normative force because literary works aren't committed to representing rational behavior. They're not committed to um, sort of illuminating us about the standards of rationality. However, I do think what readers are doing and when reading literature will typically, always, involve some assessment of the rationality of what's going on. That's one of the basic questions. Like, you know, what are the standards at work in this, you know, in this fictional world? Are people behaving rationally? If not, why not? I mean, that's just pretty basic to um, the literary experience. So the literary work has no allegiance essentially to representing um, uh, rational belief formation, but the reader is going to have that as one concern. Okay. But anyway, I'm just going to assume that there is kind of a total evidence sympathy um, in the literary domain, meaning when you're encountering a character who is a belief um, holding a belief that disagrees with others, we enter into that depiction of disagreement with the sense that the characters need to draw on what got them there in order to participate in the disagreement as themselves. Like that's part of why it's their disagreement. It's that they are drawing on their total evidence, the, the path of reasoning that got them to this position. Um, and I think this is related to um, 
some points that Wedgwood makes in a paper about, not about fictional characters at all, just about real people. And he's sort of giving, a, I think, an interestingly different take on the steadfast view, which is, why is steadfastness right? It's because we, our own path of reasoning is the only one that can direct us, the one that can guide us in belief formation. You can't really ask people to um, be guided by something other than the reasons that made sense to them and got them to their belief in the first place. But So there's something along those lines that's going on in our expectations for fictional characters. And, and generally, to establish characters' relations to each other as peers or non-peers in this epistemic sense, independently of how they comport themselves in the disagreement at hand. In the, in the literary context, I think that would just seem quite bizarre. It would be an unmotivated neglect of the centrally relevant evidence for their epistemic status. Okay. Um, all right, so I, I'm just saying sort of roughly, total evidence seems to have a kind of um, um, home in the literary domain, does that mean that there's a literary allegiance to steadfastness? Because that's how those, these things are aligned in the epistemic debate. If you are a steadfast theorist, you're going to take something like a total evidence um, approach to how evidence fits together about first order reasoning and um, facts of disagreement. Um, so, and that total evidence model is usually assumed to um, um, point people toward non-conciliation or to lead to non-conciliatory results. So that's why looking at these stories, I think they're interesting because they have a different pattern of allegiances. I think they do um, show this kind of total evidence approach, but conciliation turns out to be called for or appropriate. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna just try to lay that out for you in these stories. They all depict situations in which this fact of disagreement with an ethical peer, I'd say, makes a form of conciliatory response reasonable, even though, to repeat, the conciliator's original reasoning I would say is not obviously exposed as inadequate, and the ethical peer is some type of epistemic inferior. So these conciliating responses are reasonable because the ethical peer's contribution is relevant to how adequately one's ethical reasoning meets one's actual ethical context. Okay, so again, that's just a general statement. Um, I'm going to try to illustrate this by starting with the Melville story, um, which is in a quite extreme case. Um, so do people know this story, the um, Bartleby the Scrivener? Well, you should, I would say, I really like all three of these stories. They're very, they're, they're very entertaining, I would say. So anyway, uh, uh, Bartleby the Scrivener is, um, I'm going to give you one passage from it, but it's, it's, it's set in an office. It's a mid-19th century story. Um, it's kind of like an office sitcom, like, but very, very peculiar. Um, and it's a legal office where there's the narrator of the story is the lawyer who runs the office, and all of his employees spend all of their time supposedly copying legal documents. You know, there's no photocopier. So they're generating copies and they're checking their copies. So it is a kind of wonderful evocation of a certain kind of labor, um, like you're a human photocopier. Um, okay, so Bartleby is one of these copier, copyists, um, and he starts out very well, and then he starts not being willing to do what the employer asks him. So here's the passage that kind of give you this. So here's the, the narrator, the employer. 
copies, the copies, said I hurriedly. We're going to examine them. There, and I held towards him the fourth quadruplicate. I would prefer not to, he said, and gently disappeared behind the screen. For a few moments, I was turned into a pillar of salt, standing at the head of my seated column of clerks. Recovering myself, I advanced towards the screen and demanded the reason for such extraordinary conduct. Why do you refuse? I would prefer not to. These are your own copies we are about to examine. It is labor-saving to you. It is common usage. Every copyist is bound to help examine his copy. Is it not so? Will you not speak? Answer. I prefer not to, he replied in a flute-like tone. It seemed to me that he carefully revolved every statement that I made, fully comprehended the meaning, could not gainsay the irresistible conclusion. Um, okay, so this story goes on with, that's nearly the only thing Bartleby says the whole time. The, the lawyer ramps up the arguments. I mean, it goes, you know, into religion, it's legal, it's citizenship. I mean, it's, he tries everything. I would prefer not to. And it goes, then there's a kind of a tragic end. Um, I won't tell you exactly what happens, except that Bartleby ends up um, in prison and dies there. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so it's not exactly an office sitcom, but, um, but and the, okay, so what's going on here? I'm just going to say what I think is going on here, and you do have to read the story so you can disagree with me. Okay, so first, what is Bartleby up to? I, I, and I don't know. It's not obvious that we can take him to be reasoning at all. E or either, you know, he has, like, the best reason of all, I would prefer not to, or it's not really a reason. I don't even know what to say about that exactly. Um, but I do think we can say that he is an epistemic inferior to his employer. The employer is giving good reasons for doing his work. And Bartleby just isn't, he just doesn't give it any uptake. He doesn't come back with objections that make sense in relation to what the employer has said. Okay, so I'm just gonna say, I think he's an epistemic inferior, even if he's quite capable of being a good reasoner, he's not being one in this relation. But the weird thing about the story, or if, if you're like a philosopher, <laughs> bringing what philosophers bring to the story, it seems to me, is that the employer's reasoning ends up seeming inadequate. You start to think, ugh, this, he's not dealing well with Bartleby. He's not figuring out what to say. Um, and in the end, you, even though Bartleby, you could say, oh, Bartleby's been the one who lets everyone down, it is more that the employer seems to have let Bartleby down. He, whatever he's done, it doesn't seem to have been enough. Um, okay, so what to say about that? Well, uh, um, partly, I think this is because Bartleby is an ethical peer. Bartleby is someone the lawyer ends up needing to show concern and respect for. So that's part of why he can't just sort of ignore him. I mean, of course, this is, this is a fictional world. In the real world, you could ignore Bartleby, but he can't. This is, this is the lawyer's part to play, to deal with Bartleby. But anyway, I think his reasoning is inadequate because he's in what I'm calling an ethically ill-defined context. This interlocutor, Bartleby, <coughs> fails to affirm that anything counts as good, and he fails to make it clear that people can share reasons. It's, he's not allowing that basic context for ethical reasoning to be um, assumable, okay? So I, I think 
again, it, it's kind of a fantasy to think that one person saying, I would prefer not to, can have this big an effect. But in the story, I'm just saying, I think it does. You start to think there is no, we don't share reasons. We don't have an ethical context. So I'm just playing that. And so what is the employer stuck with or what does he come to? Why is there what I'm calling a conciliatory um, response? Why is it appropriate for him? I, I think it's because he cannot sustain the viability of his reasoning by himself. If he can't reach this ethical peer by reasoning, he does, in some sense, need to acknowledge that um, his, his reasoning is inadequate. Okay, it is not doing what he intends it to do, which is to um, establish the reason for this person to do what he ought to do. And he can't do that, okay? Okay, so I think Bartleby does have a very important effect on the context. Um, but it, this is a very extreme case. Um, so sort of a, a certain kind of limit case of disagreement. Okay, I'm gonna move right on to a very different setting where, thank goodness, you can think, ah, there is a shared ethical context. There is the possibility of really reasoning with each other. It still goes horribly wrong, but it's not the Bartleby case. It is a case in which there's a, what I would call a shared ethical world. This is 1940s small town Georgia in the United States. There's a campaign for governor going on. And this man, Raber, who's some kind of academic, we never learn what his field is, he gets into this situation where he commits himself to convincing his barber that the barber's candidate should not be voted for. The barber supports the segregationist candidate, the one who wants to keep whites, blacks separate. Raber, the sort of protagonist, is going to show the barber wrong. Okay, so they disagree about the political candidate. Um, and here's a little passage um, where he, he, he works really earnestly on his argument for his barber. And, um, and then he shows it to his friend who's a philosophy, um, an, an academic who teaches philosophy at the local <coughs> college, um, Jacobs. And um, uh, anyway, I'll just give you a sense of this. Okay, Raber. He was disgusted with himself for saying he would give them reasons. Reasons would have to be worked out systematically. What was the matter with him? Why not work them out? He could make everything in that shop squirm if he put his mind to it. So he writes, he thought it was blunt enough. It began, for two reasons, men elect other men to power. And it ended, men who use ideas without measuring them are walking on wind. He thought the last sentence was pretty effective. So he shows it to Jacobs, the philosopher. Well, Jacob said, so what? What do you call yourself doing? Defending myself against barbers, he said. You ever tried to argue with a, bar a barber? I never argued, Jacob said. So I love that one. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, just give you one little further passage. Um, this is when he does give, he returns to the barber shop, gives the argument, but he starts by saying to the barber, why don't you um, invite your employee, George, to listen to you? George is the only black character in the story. He works for the barber. He's usually in the back room. So Raber is saying, why don't you have him come out front? So here's the passage. Okay, if you're calling everybody else, why don't you call your boy, George? You afraid to have him listen? The barber looked at Raber for a second without saying anything. Raber felt as if he had made himself too much at home. He can hear, the barber repeated. He can hear what he hears, and he can hear two times that much. He can hear what you don't say as well as what you do. 
Raver felt as if he were fighting his way out of a net. He heard the words drag out. Well, the way I see it, men elect. He felt them pull out of his mouth like freight cars, jangling, backing up on each other, grating to a halt, sliding, clinching back, jarring, and then suddenly stopping as roughly as they had begun. It was over. Um, so he gives the argument. It, the barber and the other customers, and perhaps George as well, just apparently feel sorry for him. It's a really bad scene. <laughs> like you, you don't actually want everyone to feel sorry for you after you've given your impassioned argument. I mean, it, it ends quite badly. Uh, Raber ends up punching the barber and running out into the hot street with the lather coming off of his face. But okay, what's going on with this? Now, I haven't set this up, but the barber is quite deliberately on O'Connor's part, I think, presented as a bad reasoner. He repeats some of his candidates' campaign speeches, and they are just like every fallacy in the book, you know, ad hominems, slogans, just like, just hokey. It's like American politics, let me just say. It's like, it's right there on the page. Okay, so he's presented very much as the, the paradigm of poor reasoning. But the thing is, is I hope that little passage could bring out a bit. He's not an epistemic inferior in every respect, okay? It's a, like a variegated field because he can tell Raber is quite racist. I mean, and I'm not giving you the basis for that, but he sees that Raber doesn't. So there's this issue of self-knowledge that the barber ends up being the one who sort of is able to bring this very uncomfortably home to Raber. Now, I think this is getting at a point, or this, this illustrates something Sosa explains quite nicely about these controversial beliefs or the, the messy beliefs where, um, you know, that it is quite difficult to know the roots of your own beliefs. It is very, like, it is very hard to tell where you've come from. And to, to the judgment of epistemic purehood seems to demand that you be able to give others access to where your beliefs have come from. That would be the ideal. And Sosa is saying, that's just unrealistic. That isn't really how any of us, it um, isn't how any of us know ourselves. Now, I'll just say, Sosa uses this fact about, in some sense, the inaccessibility of our own, the origins of these beliefs for steadfast purposes. He thinks this, in a way, gives us a reason to think we often will not be able to find others to be peers because we can't share the information we would need to make that judgment. I just think this is an example where you, that fact that Raber doesn't know where his own views have come from or what their full import is, um, it's an example where you see, ah, that's a reason to be very wary about steadfastness, <laughs> you know, that you might need to be open to conciliation because of that fact. So I, I just, I think there is sort of an issue about what do you make of this, of Sosa's point. But anyway, just to follow out what I'm saying about the story, the barber is quite wrong about what is ethically demanded here. And I don't think O'Connor has any, uh, she, she's not writing this story to celebrate the barber's view. However, uh, he does live the more integrated life, as far as we can tell from this little story. You know, he works with George every day. They have a working relationship, and he, in that little comment to Raber, he actually respects what George knows about Raber. You know, he, he knows that George has a more sophisticated sense of Raber's racism than Raber does. So. He's treating George better than Raber does in a certain way. And he has some standing to expose Raber's, what I'm just calling his ethical bad faith. Okay, so I think that 
Here's, Weber does need to be conciliatory toward the barber in this strange way. Both ethically, he needs to realize, I'm kind of, I'm more on the same page with you. I am, my, my um, impulses are more racist than I knew. Um, and in epistemic terms, he, he needs to learn what the barber knows about him. So I, 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 have, I think it's actually kind of difficult to explain the epistemic problem with Raber because in, it isn't as though his argument for the more progressive candidate is wrong. He's still got the right argument, but there's something wrong with the meaning of that argument for him, perhaps. There is something he needs to learn about it. So, I think total evidence here, taking into account the worth of their reasoning, what's feeding into their views. Strangely, there's a little bit of a retrograde conciliation, I think, that's called for, where Raber needs to realize he is affiliated with the wrong side, and he needs to see this that yes, there are things he knows that the barber doesn't, there are things the barber knows that he doesn't. He needs to um, uh, kind of be both conciliatory and steadfast in certain ways. Okay, right. Lastly, I'm gonna talk very quickly about one more story. This is the Grace Paley stories from the 1950s. Um, and it does something that I think can come across very well in, in literary works, that they're often sort of interested in this, that you hold a belief, um, you uh, have good arguments for it, and you're right. So you're, you're ethically right. But the world moves on. Circumstances change, and you may quite soon be part of a world in which that ethical truth has no place, or it's just sort of lost its, again, the context has changed. Um, and in that circumstance, maybe some kind of conciliation is rational. Okay, so this is a story, The Loudest Voice, where there's a mother and daughter, and I'd say the mother's reasoning is not shown to be wrong, but it does lose relevance in a certain way. It's just, I'll say it becomes unsuited to meeting her ethical context. And the view of an epistemic inferior, the child, who just couldn't possibly know the ethical and historical circumstances as her parents do, in the story, that child's perspective is allowed to win. Um, now, the, the circumstance is just, uh, it's a New York City primary school, state school, in which they're about to hold their Christmas pageant. And it's a, the school population is both Christian and Jewish children, and they, they invite this woman's daughter, Shirley, to, um, be the voice of Jesus in the Christmas pageant, and Shirley is Jewish. And, and here's where Paley has some fun. She has the Christmas pageant be portraying the whole life of Jesus, so including the crucifixion, which you normally wouldn't do in the Christmas pageant. You know, you're happy with Bethlehem and nativity scenes, but no, they're going to do the agony in the garden and everything. So, Okay, so that's kind of, again, sort of a fantasy. But anyway, the Jewish parents are all debating, should they let their children participate in this Christmas pageant? Okay, so here are Shirley's parents. Oh, but, and is, the story is narrated by Shirley. Oh, but when my mother heard about it all, she said to my father, Misha, you don't know what's going on there. Kramer is the head of the tickets committee. Who, asked my father, Kramer? Oh yes, an active woman. Active? Active has to have a reason. <laughs> Listen, she said sadly, I'm surprised to see my neighbors making tra-la-la -la for Christmas. My father couldn't think of what to say to that. 
Then he decided, you're in America. Clara, you wanted to come here. In Palestine, the Arabs would be eating you alive. Europe, you had pogroms. Argentina is full of Indians. Here you got Christmas. Some joke, huh? Very funny, Misha. What is becoming of you? If we came to a new country a long time ago to run away from tyrants, and instead we fall into a creeping pogrom, that our children learn a lot of lies, so what's the joke? Ah, Misha, your idealism is going away. He says, so is your sense of humor. Okay, um, now I'll, I'll just pause over these parents for a moment, because in my examples, I think they are epistemic peers. I think they're the only example I have of two people who really argue with each other, who really put their reasons on the table well, and you, neither one is presented as having some sort of you know, obliviousness to what is really at stake. No, they're really talking to each other. Um, okay, so they are epistemic peers. And in a way, the father's view, who I'm not, I'm not giving, he says a few other things that are relevant, but his view kind of wins because he's the one who's willing to let Shirley be Jesus. Um, but I, I don't, I think it is more Shirley who gets to count as winning the argument or, or the, um, at any rate, the one the mother has to conciliate toward. Um, so I'll just say, in the end, the mother is defending the choice of Jewish children to play the key roles. But here's what she says. She says, ugh, explain, explain my mother, what could Mr. Hilton do, the director? They got very small voices after all. Why should they holler? You think it's so important they should get in the play? Christmas, the whole piece of goods, they own it. Okay. Um, and I'll just say, Shirley has loved being the voice of Jesus. She has the loudest voice in the school, and she has used it. She's bossed everyone around. She's treated it as her entry into the theater. <laughs> and, uh, and the thing is, what she's gotten out of this is that it's very lonely to be a Christian because of you know, the agony in the garden and the crucifixion, it's like, you know, she feels sorry for the Christians. So that's sort of what Shirley's done with all of this experience. It has not turned out to be an oppressive, um, indoctrinating experience. So that, again, this is within the story. Um, okay, so the mother's initial view that this should not be done in the first place. You shouldn't be asking Jewish children to celebrate Christmas, you know, that I don't think that is ever rejected. I don't think she is shown to be wrong, but there is a conciliation that seems appropriate. Why is that? It's because, roughly, she doesn't determine the meaning of her daughter's actions and experiences. And in this context, this child, who has not lived through 20th century Jewish history, really, you know, who's in a different um, context in that sense. That child is a more free and fearless guide to how to live in an ethically imperfect situation. So I'd say in the story, this mother's conciliation is rational because she hasn't insisted on fixing the ethical value of a situation that is not simply hers to fix. The daughter does have a role to play in making this a meaningful situation. Okay, so here's just a summary of what I've been trying to say. In ethical disagreement, the ethical and the epistemic factors interact in shaping rational response. Ethical peers who require my concern and respect may be epistemic inferiors who nonetheless can do these things. They might undermine the viability of my reasoning, as Bartleby does, I think. They might reveal my ignorance and my ethical flaws, as happens to Raber. Or they might introduce new possibilities for ethical significance, as I think the daughter does in the Paley story. The total evidence as embodied in these literary works shows that epistemic superiors may be warranted in conciliatory response to ethical disagreement. 
Okay, now I just want to finish with one objection, like a kind of big objection that I'm not going to do much with. I've been reading these stories a certain way, but I, I do think you could read them in a quite opposed way. The things I've been calling conciliation and sort of the humor of the stories too, you could understand them as showing that these stories are ridiculing reasoned argument. <laughs> You know, I mean, that, or they're, that they're despairing at the role of reason in ethics. So maybe these conciliatory moves, the, what I'm calling conciliating moves, are really non-rational adaptations to disagreement. Okay, now I'm just, I'm just gonna say, I, I agree that these stories, they don't make it obvious that there is a rational response that's going to help. They don't make that obvious. It's a question, it's a problem. But I, I, I'll just say, I think they are stories that are very interested in the fact that we are reasoners. They're very sympathetic to the problems of being a good ethical reasoner. And that, um, well, I think what they're showing is it's very difficult. It's tricky, but it is not impossible. Okay, thank you.